This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1719, Aquaman Movie Review and Comic Talk. I'm Adam Murdo. And I'm Chris Everly. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, it's a three-pronged attack here uh, with uh, <laughs> three different geeks in three different locations. Uh, myself at the CGS studio, Ian Levenstein coming at you from Brooklyn, and Chris Everly from his uh, stronghold in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Indeed. I'd say this is our trident of fury. <laughs> <laughs> so fitting, so fitting. Neither location, neither time, nor space shall deter us from recording, gentlemen. I'm honored you joined us. Yay, verily. <laughs> <laughs> Murr, who's our sponsor today? Oh, well, Chris, our sponsor today is once again our friends at the Collection Drawer Company. Ah, yes. Makers of the uh, Drawer Box, the uh, Easy access storage solution for your comic book collection. Easy access because they open via a pull-out drawer in the front of the box as opposed to that pesky uh, lid on the top of the box, which makes it nigh impossible to access the comics in a long box on the bottom of a stack of long boxes. And if you've got a collection at home uh, consisting of many such piles of long boxes, you know how inconvenient that can be. But it's a thing of the past with the drawer box. Uh, and not only are they convenient, they're also extremely sturdy. Um, actually, as of uh, this past year, they have improved the design by strengthening the outer support sleeve with a double wall construction for every size and shape of drawer box they make, which makes them more stackable and more stable than ever before. It used to be they recommended a maximum five uh, drawer boxes in a stack. You can probably go a little higher than that now with this new double wall design that they've added. And they make uh, drawer boxes not only in comic book sizes, but also LP record sizes, uh, action figure sizes, sewing supply sizes, magazine size. Um, to whatever you're collecting, there's probably a drawer box that will help you uh, store and access them that much more easily. Um, they also offer accessories that go with their drawer boxes, such as the uh, box locks anchors, uh, which help to prevent box tipping and allow you to stack those uh, boxes uh, with even more confidence. And the box sort upright dividers, which helps you to organize and uh, divide uh, your collection within a drawer box and uh, prevent them from tipping over, spilling over, causing spine cracking and other damage within your drawer boxes. And if you happen to need... Uh, a lot of drawer boxes to house your collection to replace a whole bunch of those traditional long boxes. Uh, they do offer volume discounts for large orders. Uh, so stop by collectiondrawer.com to read a few more details. Uh, also, if you'd like to check them out on Facebook, you can find them under the name Drawer Box. That's all one word, storage system. And on Instagram as Drawer Boxes. Again, all one word. So that is Collection Drawer Company and their fine product, the Collect the Drawer Box, um, several of which I've got back at my own uh, cluttered abode. And I must say they do help um, tremendously with the accessibility of my many, many, many comic books, whether I've read them or not. <laughs> Murd, as always, you're a magnificent spokesperson. I, I do my best, Chris. And their slogan, don't break your back while hiking up your drawers. 
(laughs) (laughs) If it isn't, it should be. (laughs) Gentlemen, Happy New Year to you both, by the way. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. All my time. Happy belated birthday, Mr. Yes, happy belated birthday. The 40th. The 40th birthday. Yes, indeed, the 40th. (laughs) Celebrating four fabulous decades of furry-faced futility. (laughs) You've got five years on me, sir. I'm hitting, hitting number three, five in two weeks. Oh well, and, I, I, and since we're talking about this, I must admit, tomorrow I will be forty-six years old. So I don't bunch think of January babies. Yes, <laughs> I'm firmly in the claws of middle age. <laughs> in fact, you'll be amused to hear that I had to go to a podiatrist today because I think I might have some tendonitis in my uh, heel, my, like behind my like, the back of my foot because I've been running for so long mm. my, since I was a teenager. And uh, it worked out fine, but you know, again, you, you feel the, the like those talons <laughs> of middle age sinking in. Got to enjoy ourselves while we can, gentlemen. I'm going to a chiropractor because I've been experiencing sciatica, so that's where I'm going <laughs> tomorrow. So we're all falling apart here, people. <laughs> yes, those talons have a very wide reach, don't they? Indeed. Well, on a brighter note, I want to ask you guys a question before we dive into our topics. Did anybody get any like really geek related uh, items for the holidays? Uh, well, I did. I did receive a copy of Infinity War on uh, 4K slash Blu-ray. Uh, so nice. I, I now have a digital copy of that. Just, of course, just in time for it to go on Netflix. But as <laughs> as some people would know, that will not last because uh, true. Uh, you know, with Disney's uh, streaming service coming around the bend. I like to own my own digital copies of things, knowing that I'll always have one when I need one. Mm. Uh, so I got that, and I I may very well, if I'm playing my cards right, which I believe I am, I will probably have a PlayStation 4 for my birthday upcoming. And once that happens, I will be able to play more of the game that I'm going to discuss later on in this episode that involves a spider swinging through New York. All right. Uh, Ian, I'm sorry. When did you say your birthday was again? Uh, the 28th of January. 28th. All right. How about you, Murd? Any uh, geek bounty for you? Uh, it's actually kind of a lean year for presents in general, Chris. I think between Christmas and birthday, which are a week apart after all, stacked together, it will probably occupy less than a cubic foot of space. But, <laughs> you know, as we get older, we, we, we need less stuff. True, true. So I did get uh, my usual uh, large gift certificate to Golden Eagle Comics. So that's a gift that keeps on giving. Um, And a few uh, DVDs of interest. Um, I got a copy of Zardoz starring uh, Sean Connery. Oh! I gotta watch. I've never seen that movie. I have to watch it. Oh, Oh, well, I'll 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 try to watch it before our uh, gathering at your house, and then I can let you borrow my copy. Honored, brother. As Honored. you did for me with Flash Gordon last year, and uh, I enjoyed that uh, viewing experience so much, Chris, that I also got a copy of Flash Gordon for my birthday <laughs> with Alex Ross uh, cover artwork and everything. Oh, nice. yeah. And, um, yeah, Ian, I got a copy of um, uh, The Venture Brothers Season 6 on DVD as well. Well done. Well done. I'm uh, All right. working my way through Season 4 as we speak, actually. I'm realizing just how many of these episodes I missed when they were first run on Adult Swim. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I just barely finished uh, the most recent season on streaming before it went away, so I'm I'm, I'm caught up. But uh, on the bright side, you'll probably have at least in a year and a half, if not more, to catch up on Venture Brothers because they're not exactly timely. Right, I know how they do. Yeah. Uh, my my uh, 
selection. Uh, I was I got, actually I got a thrilling gift. My brother bought me. He knows me so well. It just came out uh, th- this past year because the fiftieth anniversary. A massive coffee table book entitled "Behind the Planet of the Apes," and it takes you through. I'm still reading. It takes you through the entire history behind the original film. And since I'm a, you know, just I'm so in love with that movie, it's I'm just besotted. And just to get this book, I've just been page to page all the behind the scenes information, like the 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 illustrations they, that the storyboards, all that. Just this huge grin on my face. It's it's a magnificent tome. So good stuff. Love the title. Yep. So I'm I'm really enjoying that. All right. Uh, Aquaman. I've been looking forward to talking about this film. Aquaman. <laughs> I should have done Ted Knight. Ian, thanks for covering for me there. That was, that, that's, every time you got – exactly. Well done. No Aquaman conversation can start for long without Ted Knight. In fact, let me bring down my Mego Aquaman for my shelf here. <laughs> and I think, I think there's one in the CGS studio too, if I remember correctly. So. Uh, yep, I can see him. He's giving me the eyeball from across the room right now. <laughs> Although the, the Amigo Aquaman is very much not in the tradition of the Jason uh, Moa Aquaman, but uh, he is the, he's the original. He will suffice. So uh, let's try to start with opening comments. Like, what, you guys, what was your guys' initial impressions of the movie? Ian, how about you? Uh, well, if you had told me 15 years ago that I was going to enjoy an Aquaman movie, <laughs> I was going to enjoy Man of Steel more than I was going to enjoy a Batman-Superman crossover movie, and more than I was going to enjoy a Justice League movie, I would have kicked you out of my house and called you a liar. (laughs) And and yet, that is exactly what happened, and I'm still not exactly sure why, but it was was just so much fun— and and that that's what I that's what I needed at that point. It was silly. It was at times outright stupid, but <laughs> it was just so on the nose, not taking Aquaman too seriously that I enjoyed every damn minute of it. So yeah, I I, I was thrilled with it. How about you, Murd? Uh, well, I managed to be almost entirely unspoiled. Uh, when I went into the theater, um, I saw it. Uh, it was a late showing, like 9 p.m. on New Year's Day, my 40th birthday. Took my dad along, um, and up till that point, uh, the only preconception I went in with was something that I got from uh, one of your Facebook posts, Ian, uh, mm-hmm. in which you you said something akin to what you just said: uh, "What a world we're living in, where uh, an Aquaman movie is better than a Man of Steel or a Batman v Superman movie." Um, you mentioned that a the script was quote so stupid it hurts. And B, there was an octopus playing the drums. And yes. So, <laughs> so those were the only two things I, I really knew about this movie going in. And um, I, I'm kind of glad that I read that thing that you posted, Ian, because it did cushion the blow. The dialogue was in spots extremely inane. Um, uh, and, and the plot uh, was a, a little on the Swiss cheesy side. There's really quite a few things in this movie that, uh, in terms of plot and character, that could have stood to be developed a little bit further. I mean, uh, not to take it to the point of taking itself too seriously, Ian, because that's another excellent point you made there, that this movie certainly is not guilty of that sin. Um, but uh, it's it, it's a beautiful movie on the visual level, you know, the, the, the visual design, the sound design, both top-notch, I would argue, Oscar-worthy, and probably the best I've seen in any, well, certainly in any DC superhero movie that I've seen to date. And it, it was just a rollicking, you know, big, dumb, good time. 
So I certainly <laughs> wasn't disappointed in it in that regard. I would have enjoyed it more if I weren't tacking up a lung through much most of the running time because uh, I've, I've, I caught a, a case of the Christmas crud, the same thing that had me hacking in the background while Chris and I were talking about uh, the Submariner in our last Spotlight episode. It was still clinging to me uh, when we went to see Aquaman, so I felt like I needed to be in an aqua lung. <laughs> <laughs> And one of your favorite albums, my friend. It certainly is. Yeah. All right. Uh, we, we should mention, of course, we're going to spoil the movie to, to death in case a listener hasn't seen it yet. Um, my reaction, gentlemen, is similar to yours. Uh, I should preface by saying that one of my favorite parts of Justice League was Jason Momoa as Aquaman. Yeah. So I was looking forward to seeing him continue with that interpretation in this film, and I wasn't disappointed. Um just a couple quick general comments before we dive into more detail. I agree wholeheartedly about the look of it, um, the uh, the sound, and while in many ways it was dopey, but it was dopey in a way that A, I was kind of expecting, and B, really didn't bother me because I, I liked how they, they they did try to bring in some of the history and intrigue of Atlantis. Like I, I love – I mean Willem Dafoe was a tremendous actor, so he's there as Volko. Um, you know, I enjoyed all that. But what really struck me about the film was how well they captured the look of so many of the classic Aquaman characters. Mm-hmm. Black Manta was breathtaking. Yeah. Like wow. I mean – they didn't skimp at all and just like, okay, we're going to lift him from the comic and put him into the movie, and it worked. And also, I mean, it, it's kind of it was kind of goofy, but when Ocean Master put his helmet on, I'm like, wow, it's Ocean Master. Like, like they they, they sometimes these adaptations they, they either because it does just won't work in a transfer or the filmmakers see it as embarrassing. They don't make that direct translation when it comes to the, to the costumes, the look of the characters from the comics. And I can understand that for certain properties, but they just did it here, and it worked for me. I mean, I was like, it's Aquaman. I, I mean, the whole look of the film w- was was just a, a sheer delight for me, and one of my favorite parts of, of, of the viewing experience. But that aside, I, I mean, yeah, it, it was not the deepest film. I mean, I think Wonder Woman is still by far the best film of, the, of this unfolding dc cinematic universe yeah but um it was fun and it, it, they really brought in a lot of the elements of the comic book and its history and i i love momoa's interpretation of the character like i, I really enjoy you know him, like man of two worlds and, and you know the, the humor that's there and and just the sheer physical charisma of his performance so I, I dug it, and, and I, I know it did well, so I'm assuming they're going to make a sequel. Anybody hear anything about that? Or More than likely. I mean, I, yeah. I, I would think at this point, I mean, with, uh, with one, what, what is it, Wonder Woman 1984? Is yes, that yep, yep, yeah. yep. That's next up on the slate, and there certainly hasn't been any talk of, an, of a Justice League sequel. The Batman uh, movie is kind of dying on the vines. Flash is in turmoil. Nobody's talking about uh, Cyborg anymore, so they're, they're going to have to go with what works, and Aquaman made a ton of money, so it makes perfect sense to make a sequel. It has crossed yeah. the billion-dollar mark. Wow. Has it really? Yeah. Well, that's worldwide, because I know it did really well in yeah. China, for example. Um, right. Oh, that's great. Uh, so let's, let's go further. Like, what, what elements of this movie really worked for you, gentlemen, and what, what didn't work? Like, what made you cringe in a way that was not, you know, with, with irony attached to it? So, 
you know, I, I was actually thoroughly impressed with the action of the movie. Um, and I, I didn't exactly know what to expect because, I mean, with a director like James Wan, who's mainly known for his his horror work, like he, he did Saw and Insidious and uh, he did do a, a Furious 7, which, right. was actually, which, which, which was, you know, kinetic as hell and, you know, completely, you know, was ridiculous in, in ways as well. <laughs> and he took a lot of those sensibilities. He took a lot of the Fast and the Furious sensibilities here, especially with like the chase scenes that were going on at times. Um, and applied them for the water. And he he basically made, and I mean, pardon my French, he made a underwater Black Panther, um, especially visually, you know, because when you first see Atlantis, that's immediately what came into my head. Like, oh, oh, we're, you know, we're in a forgotten uh, wonderland of a world that mm. could never possibly exist, but it was right under our noses the entire time. And, you know, that that's what Wakanda was for Black Panther. And that's very much what Atlantis was here. And it's it's unique in in, in the visuals. And it's also visually stunning in general. It's just it, it completely enraptured me in that way. And the action and the visuals are 100 percent what got me for this movie. And what, what didn't work for you, Ian? The writing. um and i mean i'm I'm being i'm being you know a little bit blunt when i say that but uh there are there are some lines in this movie that just fall so completely dead um like it felt like at times the movie was written by uh you know like monkeys with typewriters like they like, (laughs) like like you know, like like you know, like so on on the on the nose with lines like you know, I must defeat him and things like that. Like it was it was like you were watching one of the nineteen sixties cartoons. Um, and, I was waiting for Tusky the Walrus to show up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, come on, you know, we we got we got the freaking you know drum playing, and I, I believe it, it, it wasn't an octopus. I think it was a squid. But, uh, you know, the uh, the squid playing the drums and all that, like they went that crazy. We even got seahorses like that. We, we need we needed at least like one more of those call outs. It's just. It was clear to me that Jason Momoa was definitely improvising his lines and nobody else was. <laughs> and and that's why you got like so much more of a natural performance out of Jason Momoa, even if they weren't improvised. He just has that style. Yes. And no one else in the movie was playing it that way. So it was very weird. <laughs> like it was very, very off-putting at times. But at the same time, there was genuine chemistry between him and Mira. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I actually really enjoyed uh, Willem Dafoe. I always enjoy Willem Dafoe. Oh, but he's a uh, tremendous actor. Yeah, but his, but his performance here as Volko was great, even if there are exactly seven superhero actors and they wind up in every single movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm starting to feel that way. Like, I mean, come on, this movie had had Conan, Green Goblin, and yeah. Night Owl in it. That's true. <laughs> so go figure. Oh, and Dolph Lundgren. So yeah. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I was I was digging seeing Dolph Lundgren on screen. Yeah. I, I mean, the month before I'd seen Creed too, so he returned, and that is Ivan Drago, and then to see him again in this film, uh, it was that was fun. I really enjoyed that. One thing about Momoa's performance that I to, to, to piggyback on your point, Ian, is that the scene when they're I think are they on are they in Sicily I think yes and yep. they're you know they're they're on their their quest essentially and he he comes he comes to that 
oh, so that overlook and, and there's statues of various figures from ancient Roman history. And he's saying, well, you know, Scipio wasn't a king and he was a general. And Mira's like, how do you know all that? And he said, well, my, my dad learned history. And I was like, okay, that's a really cool moment in the movie because whoever came up with that scene, because they're acknowledging that, you know, he's not, he's not a bonehead and, and you know, he's someone who is going to be a king himself. Yeah. And they're showing that, you know, Aquaman Arthur Curry is a person who really of depth, who has a lot of knowledge. And, and, and gravitas uh, and experience, and I, I thought that was a that was, it was a quick little scene, but I thought it was really important um, that they, they put that in there, and I, I really appreciate. And plus, I just love Roman history, but I just appreciated that because you know they're, they're showing that he's not just some you know a dude like you know he's someone who there's something there's something more to him than just you know the musculature and so forth. Yeah, um, Mert, how about you? What worked and what didn't? Uh, well. Yeah, well, my likes and dislikes uh, map pretty cleanly on Ian's, I get the feeling. Um, the visuals were the strength and the writing the weakness. Um, uh, yeah, so, so the whole the, – yes, everything with the visual design, the, the, the color palette for this underwater world was just dazzling. Um, and the, the sound, as I mentioned also, the, the, these are things – these sort of technical things are probably deserving of, of some kind of award nomination. We'll just wait and see. Um, so I, I did feel kind of uh, transported and immersed, uh, no pun intended, in this uh, uh, beautiful underwater world. Um, but yeah, this, uh, yeah, the, the story though was was something of a problem. Um, I, I'm glad that we were we were we like Arthur Curry himself uh, were sort of carried along on the the fast paced tides of this story um, so fast that we don't get much of a chance to think about. Um, well, the, the inanity of some of the situations or uh, the inc- uh, the unlikeliness of certain turns of events. Uh, the whole twin scavenger hunt that uh, Orm is off g- gathering the, the uh, approval of the other tribes of Atlantis and Aquaman and Mira are off on their little romancing the stone style adventure to find this <gasps> silly trident that for some reason is going to make everything better. And in the end, it's not so much the trident as the gigantic aqua monster uh, so awkwardly set up by some – or uh, foreshadowed by a random remark that Orm made back in the, the Royal Palace of Atlantis that really turns the tide of things. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, – that, that it, it, it felt a little to me like it, it, it began tonally, uh, like a – with the uh, I don't know, adrenaline-addled inanity of like a, a 90s action movie. Like uh, the, 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 yes. the altercation between Aquaman and uh, Black Manta and Black Manta Sr. on board their pirate ship. Um, it was kind of like a Steven Seagal movie. And then it sort of metamorphosed <laughs> from there into an 80s sci-fi fantasy movie uh, with uh, bits of uh, two or three other kinds of 80s movie grafted onto it. Uh, it's like at this point it's romanticizing the stone. At this point it's Indiana Jones. At this point it's the Karate Kid. And the list goes on. And uh, the music, which was I enjoyed, it was uh, pretty self-consciously uh, emulating uh, music of, uh, of 80s scores at points. Um, the characters, a lot of them I thought were a little bit on the thin side, with the exception of, of Aquaman. Ian makes a good point that uh, his dialogue seemed a bit more natural, and uh, uh, he, he might have been the only one that was allowed to ad-lib his lines. Um, Willem Dafoe as Volko. This is going to sound kind of silly and superficial, but I would have bought him as the character much more if they could have just given him a few false whiskers to wear. Because to me, uh, <laughs> huh? Vol- Volko minus beard equals no Volko. 
no matter who's playing him. It's true. Volk always has a beard. That's a good point, Mert. So that, that's one thing I missed. Um, the character of Ocean Master, I agree with you, Chris, that I had kind of a little fangasm moment when he finally put uh, his uh, uh, fin-trimmed metal mask on and uh, said the words Ocean Master. Um, but, uh, that and character, it looked good. It actually looked good. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I wouldn't have thought that mask would translate so well to, to, the, to film, but it did. Um, but I did think his character came across as flat as a flounder. Um, we needed a little more. <laughs> talk about something that needed to be fleshed out a little more. We, we, yeah. More of his his background and his motivations. I mean, we know that he's hungry for power. He wants to become lord of all Atlantis. He wants to be the ocean master, kind of like the undersea emperor. And uh, he wants badly to attack the surface world. And I guess if you read between the lines, it's not too hard to figure out that uh, part of his desire to attack the surface world uh, has its origin in his lifelong feeling of inferiority to his land-born hybrid brother, Arthur. Um, but that's not really it's, – it's not put on paper, if you will, in the script. Uh, it, it, it's not – put out there as clearly as it should be. Um, he does pay some minimal lip service to, uh, you know, like uh, pollution and nuclear energy and whale hunting and stuff, you know, the, the usual Atlantean, <laughs> Atlantean beefs with the surface world. They, they, they checked all of those off, but it, it just, it, it felt like we needed, he, he was, there are the makings of a good complex character there, but uh, a lot of the dots were not connected and a lot more dots needed to be drawn. And, of course, there's probably, as we've said, going to be another Aquaman movie since this one made a billion dollars. So there's plenty of chance for uh, Orm Marius to become a more a better rounded character in the future. I'm kind of hoping for that. Um, talking of visuals again and just thinking about uh, Orm Marius and his own little quest to either cow or uh, uh, cajole the, the other tribes of Atlantis into joining his cause. Uh, I'm thinking about that uh, big battle between uh, Orm's forces and the Brine, led by the voice of John Rhys Davies, um, mm -hmm. when, when Aquaman yes. shows up with the trident and the giant kraken monster. Uh, but th those, the Brine are, and and both the the Brine themselves and their crustacean technology it, it is some of the coolest. Uh, alien beings slash alien technology that I've seen on screen. It was extremely toyetic, and I thought to myself, wow, if I if this movie had come out when I was five or six, I would totally have wanted uh, my own little oh, plastic yeah. uh, articulated replica of those crab troop carriers scuttling around down there. That, 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 that was a really cool scene visually. There were a lot of really cool things visually. It's just that, as, as I'm trying to get across here, that there's other, other elements of the story that uh, really... Uh, left something to be desired. So if, if you're just going for a, like a visual feast, this movie is absolutely delivers, but uh, uh, on the level of narrative, it's, it needed a little bit of beefing up. Well, th there were there were some great surprises in the cast there as well. I mean, you mentioned John, John Reese davies I had no idea he was going to be in this, and just hearing his voice in anything. I mean, the first sci-fi show that I ever got into as a kid was Sliders. So he will always be that for me. And of course, Indiana Jones and, and all that. And uh, it's nice to see him in something with some roots to Indiana Jones uh, in, in the overall plot, which was, which was lovely, but also Digimon Hansu was in this as well as, as, as King Rico yeah. uh, was not expecting to, to hear him. And the same month that a sequel to Mary Poppins comes out, who chooses to be an Aquaman over Mary Poppins returns, but Julie Andrews. Wait, who was Julie Andrews in this movie? Julie Andrews was was Carathan. 
Uh, you know, as soon as you said she was in the movie, oh, I geez. thought to myself, ah. okay, uh, what character did we not see in the flesh? And, yep. yeah, the sea monster. It's, I never would have guessed Ian. Thank you. you. You've just blown my mind. <laughs> that was just a fact that I that I that I had heard before I went to see the movie. I knew she was in it somehow. I didn't know as what. And then when I saw it, you know, go figure. But the best surprise for me, because I hadn't actually seen him in any of the trailers, but Tamora Morrison as as Tom Curry in this, I I don't think I've seen him in anything since he was Boba Fett. Now I read that uh Jason Momoa has strong ties to New Zealand. Yes. And I believe that he insisted that this actor be in the film. Well, um, I'm glad he was. What's that? I'm glad he was. Yeah, no, he was. I thought he was excellent. Yeah. Um, what um, what did you guys think of how they portrayed um, his mother as played by Nicole Kidman? I thought she was excellent in the early scenes, the flashback uh, origin sequence, if you will. Yes. Um, it was really hard for me to do anything but roll my eyes at uh, the reveal. Uh, of her survival, uh, her, uh, the, having come through the trench into Scartaris or whatever that was supposed to be, uh, the dinosaur place, uh, mainly because it was just so precisely the same story beat that we got with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Ant-Man and the Wasp. True. I thought the same thing, Murd. Yeah. Yeah. However, it was great to see her uh, have action roles because very rarely do you get to see Nicole Kidman fight like that. True. Very true. Yeah. I, I'm sure there were, you know, stunt, stunt doubles out the wazoo, but still, she she got to cut loose a little bit, which is pretty cool. I one thing I, I like you gentlemen, a lot of the a lot of the plot, the writing, some of the characterization. I wouldn't say I was rolling my eyes because I I went in with very modest expectations, and I just kind, I just kind of rolled with all that because, like you said, I was so enjoying the visual aspect of the film and how they, they clearly really got that aspect of the comic. I, I love seeing all the different Atlantean tribes and you know that dynamic and you know the, the, the Atlantean soldiers, their armor and, and it, it just it looks so good. And I mentioned this earlier in the discussion. I, I could not get over Black Manta. Yeah. Like I, I, I had this huge grin on my face. I mean he, he they didn't do much with his character in the movie really. It was kind of like a secondary Villain, so to speak, in this right. particular story. But um, I mean, in, in the teaser at the end, they're setting it up to be more, and obviously in a sequel. But um, just the like when you first saw him, you saw like his, his minions and the way they looked. They're like, wow, they, they they took this right out of the book. I mean, and you'd think that like his helmet is so big, and they even made a joke about that. He's like, oh, I gotta have a bigger helmet. And I thought, okay, how are they gonna transfer this to film? Because it, it may look you know really goofy, um, but it. I was just now maybe to a non-comic person they kind of found it goofy, but I was just that was one of my favorite experiences of the whole movie was just seeing how well they nailed the visual for that villain, um, and just like the, the eye beams and the whole thing. I mean, it was like that scene where they're fighting in, in, in on Sicily and chasing over the rooftops, and um, you know the one Atlantean soldier has to put his head in the toilet because he can't breathe, and um, you know like the action of the movie was really well done, um, and. As you said, Ian, the other thing I really enjoyed was the chemistry between Mira and Arthur. Like yeah. that, that was for me was, was in terms of character in the movie. That was one of the highlights for me. And, and as I said, I really enjoy him as Aquaman. Now it's it's not the Super Friends Aquaman. It's not like the you know 
totally grim King Aquaman, or that maybe that'll come down the road as as, his, as the burden of the of the crown weighs more heavily on him. But I, I just I, I so enjoyed him in Justice League. That's one of the highlights for me, and what because I consider that film very mediocre. But he he brought that same sort of that sense of fun and that spirit, and you know that that just that. I mean, the guy has tremendous charisma just as as an actor. Um, and it really translated the movie. By the way, Ian, I meant to ask you because I didn't see it. How was he as Conan? Uh, not great. Uh, okay, but th- but then again, I, I don't really think that was exactly his fault. Yeah, uh, I I feel like they were that that was at the time where they were trying to remake anything and everything under the sun. Yeah, and, and it just it just it, it had a weak script and it really didn't have the visuals to go along with it. It was it was a B movie more than anything else. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that because I yeah. love Conan. But in fact, later on this episode, I'm going to talk about. Uh, I just read Conan the Barbarian number one, the new one. So nice. Um, yeah, but I, I I could watch him as Aquaman all day, and I, I hope if they do a sequel, which based on the returns is likely, they have him evolve in the role of king, so we can see the impact of that responsibility on him. Um, and I, I hope I hope they they take it in that direction because as if you read the Aquaman comics, especially a lot of the Peter David material. You know, they they really get into the political dynamics and intrigue of the, of that world and the kingdom and what he has to deal with. Um, and and Jeff Johns did that wonderfully when they did the the uh, New Fifty Two. It's one of the few New Fifty Two titles I really liked. And uh, Dan added the stuff he's been doing is great as well. So there's a lot of great material they can mine for a future movie or two. So I, I'm excited. Like this this. I think if Momoa hadn't done had didn't have given the performance he gave, and if the visuals weren't up to snuff, the movie prob- I probably wouldn't have enjoyed the movie half as much. Yeah, um, because I agree with you both. Like, uh, for example, with the flashback scene um, with Vocal trading him on the beach, I thought the teen actor, frankly, was terrible, mm-hmm. um, and that that scene felt very flat for me. Um, and it, plus, it's you know, to be fair to the kid, you're you're, act, you're trying to act against Willem Dafoe, so that's. That's gonna be an issue too, but um, if if they can punch up the script going forward a little bit and bring in a more of that gravitas, and, and you know, you still get those types of the level of performance from from Momoa, I think you could have a really enjoyable and perhaps even better uh, second film. So yeah, and like Murd said, Ocean Master in the comic is is a can be a, is a very complex character, and he's one of those characters who he's not always necessarily the complete villain. Like he still feels a loyalty to Atlantis. And I hope they can pursue that further, which they kind of set that up a little bit there at the end when they, when they take him prisoner and so forth. But kind of hinting that uh, he's yeah, well, he he doesn't seem to have any uh, kind of grudges. He's led away. Like he feels like he's regained a connection, gained a brother uh, out of this whole thing. So it's like I guess he feels in some small way gratified. Well, and that and that was the thing. Uh, one of the things that I appreciated about this movie is that unlike. Uh, something that happens so very often in Marvel movies, as, as an example, none of the villains die in this. You know, good point. Good point, Ian. That yep. that we that we have time for them to evolve and grow in future movies if they do indeed decide to do so, which they probably will. Because again, a billion dollars, it made more money than Justice League internationally. That says a lot. Um, but what I loved, and this is not my own opinion. This is this uh, somebody else pointed this out, I believe, on Twitter. Is that I love how, in a lot of ways, Orn looks like traditional 
Aquaman, like traditional comic book Aquaman. That's like, a good point. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like he's got the, he's got the blonde hair, and, and uh, you know he's got he's got the same, a very similar build. And then you've got Jason Momoa walking in with his with his own personal take on the character to change things up. So that that was almost I feel like a nod to the comics to make to make uh, Patrick Wilson look the way he did without the mask on. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. What did you gentlemen think of? The look of the classic Aquaman costume at the end. I really enjoyed it. I would have enjoyed it a lot more had the poster not given it away. Um, I I I think that the marketing for this film went a little bit too far. Like we really didn't need to see it until then. It would have been more of a reveal, and it would have been more of a oh wow, I didn't actually expect them to go there scenario. Had I not seen it in all the promotional stills, you know, online and on TV commercials and stuff like that leading up to it. So I, I, I enjoyed it, but I would have rather it have been, been more of a surprise for me. Ian, you might have a new career as a promotional agent. That's a, <laughs> that's a very valid point. What would you think of it, Murd? Eh, well, actually, by that point in the film, I was kind of uh, numb. Uh, to, to new stimuli, it, it, it involved an orange. I barely even remember what it looked like, but uh, it had an orange shirt, and that's that's frankly enough for me. It had Fair enough. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, the, the other the other things I wanted to point out along the lines of what uh, Murd was saying about uh, you know nods to other movies, the the desert scenes had very much a mummy feel to them, like uh, mm. Brendan Fraser era mummy so even going further into like the 90s and stuff like that like stargate and uh mummy i was very much getting feels there for and especially like with the just random diving into the middle of the desert that was that was just genuine like uh treasure hunt fun for me yeah and murd mentioned one of my favorite movies romance in the stone which i just watched again just less than a month ago um all that all that that, that treasure seeking you know Fortune seeking type feel was definitely there. I agree 100. percent Yeah, and I and I enjoyed that because I grew up with a lot of movies like that. So, uh, and you mentioned you know Indiana Jones and you know John Rhys Davies and you can't go wrong with that kind of stuff. Yep. So may as well throw the Goonies in there while we're at it. Ha <laughs> <laughs> uh, And I I'd say my. Probably the most unexpected positive fight scene was Mira utilizing the wine. When when oh they, yeah, that's they right on the yep. island. That was that was such a you know like a good use of liquid as a weapon. Like you, I was not expecting that, and then suddenly you know all the bottles burst the way they did, and she uses that uh, to her advantage. That that was fantastic. Well, I think they did a nice job of showing. Because you have to assume a lot of the audience really doesn't know anything about Mira, yeah. And I like how they showed how powerful she is, um, and she, she, she's not, you know, she's not Aquaman's sidekick, right? She is, she is his partner. I, I mean, uh, and I, I really appreciated the, the, that uh, that visual quite a bit. Yep. So that was a lot of fun. Any other uh, comments you guys have about the movie in, in general? Uh, what did you guys think about the the end scene? Uh, I mean, specifically Randall Park, which talking about uh, since you did bring up Ant Man and the Wasp, like here he is showing up in a Marvel and a DC movie in in quick succession. So good for him, since he was since he had since he was in both. 
Um, what what'd you, what'd you think of the whole Dr. Stephen Shin angle at the end there? Murray, do you want to speak to that? Uh, well, I'm aware that the character was uh, introduced by Jeff Johns during his New 52 run on Aquaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, I don't really know much about him from the comics. Um, so apparently he's uh, in this movie, he's an Atlantean conspiracy theory nut. Um, and uh, he's... <laughs> Uh, been discredited pretty widely by the mainstream media, and now here he is with a key to you know, the actual kingdom of Atlantis, but he's going to have to make a bargain with the devil to um, to, to vindicate himself. So, yeah, that's to, uh, what, 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 what comes of their partnership might be interesting to see in the next movie. I enjoyed it just because I like how they brought sort of a deeper-cut character into the movie. I, I always enjoy when they when they do a comic book adaptation and they you know, they make you know nods subtle or otherwise, to sort of lesser-known uh, plot devices or characters or so forth. So I, I just thought that was fun. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention, I also really appreciated how, unlike Justice League, they allowed the Atlanteans to talk underwater without creating these ridiculous uh, like pockets to get into to speak to each other. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, that that I like. I, I wasn't sure why they did it. I, maybe because she wanted privacy with him, or or because they made it made it seem like they couldn't communicate unless they were doing that. Which uh, I mean, that, I just thought that was ridiculous. So I was so relieved they didn't include that uh, feature in in this film. Essentially, uh, almost the day after Justice League came out, uh, James Wan, the director, had to make the statement that yeah, we're not doing that in our movie. Oh, but, did he really say that? Okay. Yeah. Because people were worried, and frankly, so was I, because that's uh, – it seemed like something that Zack Snyder threw in because he wanted to and uh, didn't necessarily ask whether or not that was actually going to be used in the future. And I'm glad it didn't because it would have brought the action to a halt. Oh, yeah. You, you couldn't have any kind of interplay between characters. Like it was great when they went into that pirate ship and they had kind of like that air pocket they were in, but that felt more natural yeah. in, in that environment. I, I, I was deeply relieved just from a, a movie – Viewing's perspective, they did not include that because I remember when I saw Justice League, I was like, "What the hell is this?" Uh, I'm like, it, it just so that was that was some fanboy relief. I wiped my brow there when uh, <laughs> they didn't do that. So, yeah. Um, I actually want to ask you a couple of questions because you you seem to be a little more in tune than I am. Sure. So, going forward, DC films now is Batman and Ben Affleck not happening at all? Because I remember hearing about that for a while. It, it, it's so hard to keep track. Chris, because okay. I, I feel like every other day you hear something else. Um, last I had heard, it was in limbo again. Um, but every now and then you hear Ben Affleck say, well, I'm still up for it if they want to. And, you know, same with Henry Cavill, like Henry Cavill's out, but he's in, but he's out, but he's in. And, and nothing's actually been confirmed or going forward. The next movie after this we know ha- is happening because it has been filmed and completed is Shazam. And. After which that, I'm, which I'm immensely looking forward to, by the way. Yes, same here. After that's Wonder Woman 1984, and after that, your guess is as good as mine. I assume Aquaman too, because there are no plans, last I heard, to do a Justice League two. And uh, now, what about you said Flash was in disarray? What what is that all about? Flash has gone through uh, directors like I go through tissues when I have a cold. Oh. <laughs> Uh, th- there have been so many different people attached to that, and like uh, Ward and Miller were attached to it at one point. The, st- the guys who did Into the Spider Verse and mm. uh, and were on Solo until they wound up off of it, and they did the Lego Movie as well. 
Um, there were, there was a script that was written that, to make it a flashpoint movie. And then that was thrown out. And, uh, last I'd heard, they might be doing it as sort of a reboot, because if they do incorporate Flashpoint into it, that would be a way to change the actors of Batman and Superman if they so desire. Um, True. But I that's all pipe dreams at this point. I, I Nothing's confirmed. Nothing's official. Um, all we know is what's happening. And that, that like I said, that's that's Shazam and, uh, and Wonder Woman 1984. All right. Anybody have any other kind of closing uh, comments on the film? Uh, Merge, you want to go first? I don't really have anything uh, more to say that wouldn't be repeating what we've already said. It's just it's it's a beautiful movie, and uh, well, it's it just leaves plenty of uh, room for improvement uh, as far as actual storytelling when we get around to the sequel. Yeah, the only other thing that I, that I that I would say is uh, this movie, along with Wonder Woman, proved that what what DC was doing wrong. Again, me personally, because trust me, I know there's plenty of people out there who enjoyed the other movies before this. I I was not a big fan of them. It's the way it goes. But um, what I think this movie gets right and what Wonder Woman got right as well is embracing its comic book roots. Absolutely. And, and not being afraid yeah. to be silly sometimes. Yeah. You, know? you don't have to be entirely serious. Like you can make a serious movie with at least a little bit of levity to it. And and that's that's what we had here. There were moments of serious and there were moments of silly and re- moments of outright ridiculousness. Because how could you not? I mean, or else you would have wound up with the fake Aquaman movie that James Cameron didn't make in the Entourage TV show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I I enjoyed it, and I'm I'm looking forward to what comes next. And I think that if they continue making movies of this ilk, then DC might have something going for them. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. I concur in that. Even in the, in the most serious, darkest moments of like you know the Marvel films, there's always they always find room for humor, um, and you I mean humor is intrinsic to a lot of the Marvel properties really. But when I go back to the DC films, like one of my favorite moments in the Justice League movie, which I'm assuming was probably this part was probably scripted by Joss Whedon, was when Wonder Woman tricks Aquaman with her lasso, and Remember, he says all these things that he didn't want to say, and you know, it's it's that's like a funny, that's a fun moment in the film. Um, and I agree, like in both Wonder Woman and in this film, you have those moments of levity, and it, it's so important because if, if you're dealing with world, you know, world altering stakes in these comic book stories, if it, if it's all grim and gritty, and I mean, there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong, I love grim and gritty, but you know. It, you can also get really bogged down in that. And like, for example, I really enjoyed, and I've said this before, much of Man of Steel. I really, I like Henry Cavill as Superman. Having said that, it, it, it the end, the, the last like forty-five minutes of that movie, you know, it was just too much, um, too dark, too, you know, the, the term we've often used, disaster porn. Um, and I, I, I want to see more of a balance. And, and I, I'm going to echo what you gentlemen said. You know, I think this, this, this particular franchise aquaman has real potential i think momo is fantastic in the role and uh if they can just kind of get the writing up a little bit uh maybe it takes a little more time to build up some 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 characterization uh it it could really have legs so i I was really pleased with it overall 
I also appreciate the accidental uh, kismet of the fact that the last CGS episode before this was a Namor spotlight, and here we are with our Aquaman review. On oh, uh, Ian, that was that wasn't an accident. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done, indeed. All right, Jim, what's our freaking swears? Ian, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid three and a half. Mert. Uh, three and a quarter was what I had in mind. <laughs> Ian, you beat me to the punch. I give it a three and a half as well. So, All right. Sounds good. Not bad at all. All right, boys. Let's talk about some comics and stuff in general. All right, cool. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk about uh, a couple things I've just read today. No, go right ahead. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I read – because I just got my shipment actually today for the month – and I just read Conan the Barbarian number one. Uh, you know, the, Mar- Marvel has the property again, so it's uh, the relaunch. Although they have legacy numbering, which I also appreciate. And b- I've been really looking forward to this because it's written by Jason Aaron, who basically was born to write Conan. Um, if you ever read the book The Goddamn, which he did uh, some years back, which is sort of a, a take on early biblical times, tremendous and, and very brutal. And this it's it's a so Conan the Barbarian number one, it, it, it incorporates both young Conan the Sumerian, you know, the, the Reaver, the Slayer, and also Conan the King. So it goes back and forth in time. So it's going to incorporate both elements of, of the Conan saga there. But when you open the book, the first two pages, and I, I, I was grinning ear to ear because I love when they when they show deference to legacy, is a collage of Conan art from throughout Marvel's history. So they have like Barry Windsor Smith, the great John Buscema, Marie Severin, like various people who drew Conan for, for Marvel. They have a collage, and they kind of they're taking you through the history of Conan as it was in Marvel Comics. So that's a great. Uh, once I saw that, I was immediately thrilled. I knew this was going to be in good hands, and uh, Aaron does not disappoint. You know the, the the obviously the violence. I mean, within a few pages, you see Conan behead two men with one stroke of his sword <laughs> in an arena. Um, but it, it, you know, there's 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 sorcery. There, there's there's great sword fighting. All the stuff you want a Conan comic, but it also has the gravitas because Aaron is also taking you back and forth to when Conan later becomes the king of Aquilonia. Um, you, you can just tell as you go through this issue that he loves this this character and his world, and it, certainly very much in this first issue he does it justice. Uh, the art by uh, Mahmoud Asrar is fantastic. Uh, Matthew Wilson, beautiful coloring. Uh, Travis Latham lettering. The, the whole t- Saad Ribic does the cover. Like this is a beautifully made book. And uh, you know, I, I, I've had to cut down on some titles just because of, of money. But this is a book I'm going to be staying with. I was really looking forward to this. I've loved Conan since I was a kid. Uh, and this this is a wonderful addition uh, to the canon. So highest recommendation there. I also read uh, again today. I'm looking forward to this. Winter Soldier number one hmm. by Kyle Higgins, a writer I've always lauded on this program. Artist uh, Rod, is it Reyes? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Uh, uh, well, it's, uh, it's Brazilian so. Portuguese, so the, the R often comes out sounding a little bit more like an H, so like Reyes. Merle, leave that into your, to your expert command of uh, accents and linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, this was excellent too. I, I've loved Kagan's work on uh, Cal, Hadrian's Wall, Nightwing, 
you know, he's a writer who I think is one of the best in the business. He doesn't get as much necessarily as much notoriety as others, but this takes you right to where the Winter Soldier is now, and basically he's trying to redeem himself in a sense by helping other people who found themselves in terrible situations, like he's trying to, like he's helping, like people who've defected from Hydra, for example, to start their lives over. Um, artwork's beautiful. First issue, strong right out of the gate. You know, they establish, you know, what happened to the Winter Soldier, why, how he ended up where he is, and why, why he's trying to make a change that will not only help other people, but also himself in a sense. He tries to find redemption. Uh, it's excellent. I, I have issue two here as well. I haven't read that yet. By the way, I want to point out that in more recent Marvel comics from the past month, you know, they, they obviously pay tribute to Stan Lee. They have a black banner on the top, Stan Lee, 1922 to 2018. You open the cover, the first two pages are, are black and mourning, and then the fourth page is a beautiful uh, sketch by, I think it's Phil Noto, of Stan Lee grinning behind his sunglasses. So it was great to see that. And what I loved is in the back of the issue, of the, of the issue they have an old Stan soapbox. Nice. Uh, hang loose, heroes. Oh, I love that hyperbole where he, he kind of lays out in this particular soapbox the Marvel philosophy. It's, it's a great tribute. That I, I like how they didn't like have someone write an essay. They just left it to Stan himself in his own words. So that, that's beautifully done. And remember the last book I want to talk about that I read today. Thanos, the Infinity Conflict. Oh, yes. Latest uh, OGN offering from Jim Starlin. Yep, and Alan Davis and Mark Farmer. Did you, have, do you have this yet? I'm sure I do. I've got kind of a stack of these Thanos, the Infinity blank uh, OGNs uh, that's been piling up back at my apartment. Okay, I won't spoil anything. All I'll say is, uh, first of all, there's a really fun cartoon introduction by the great Al Milgram, which is fun. Um and first of all, it's an Alan Davis, Mark Farm production, so it's freaking gorgeous to look at. Uh, I, I love them as an artistic team, and it, without spoiling, it, it's a continuation of, of, of the, this. Again, Strong's been doing a whole series of, of Thanos OGNs in recent years, and what we have here is Thanos in his in his quest uh, not just to control the universe. And to win the, the, the favor of death, but now he essentially wants to be the universe, and it's essentially him trying to, through means that I won't spoil, trying to incorporate all the different uh, fundamental personifications of sort of elemental concepts in the Marvel universe. Murd, you will love this book um, because all like all those cosmic concepts you love in Marvel, they're all in here. <laughs> and they're beautifully rendered mm -hmm. by some um, of my favorite artists. So, yeah, I, I yeah. cannot possibly think that you're incorrect about that, Chris. Now, remember one last thing because I don't want to spoil, but because I remember you mentioning this because at the end of the book, they say, you know, to be concluded in Thanos, the infinity ending. Now, wasn't Starlin, though, unhappy with the way Marvel was treating his handling of the property? Didn't he leave? For a little while there, yes, he was unhappy with Marvel because something – I think it was something that happened in the Thanos monthly series at the time. Okay. Uh, rendered uh, a, a story idea he had for one of these graphic novels redundant, and he was upset that no editor had warned him about this or no editor had uh, you know, coordinated with other editors to prevent this from happening in the Thanos monthly. And Anyway, he, he walked off of the Marvel comics, uh, saying at the same time that he was angry only at the comics publishing branch, not the uh, filmmaking branch, who were being very good to him financially. 
I hope so. Uh, so apparently uh, he, uh, they found their way past that because uh, these OGNs are continuing to be released. Okay, so that's what I was wondering because I was wondering if this was completed before that spat occurred because I really want to see how he's going to end the story. So, um, Murray, I, I look forward to talking about this with you once you've read it. I, I think you're really going to eat it up. So, And any, anyone who's a Thanos fan or, really, or if you love Thanos in the comic – Definitely pick this up. If you if you haven't really read much Thanos in in the comic universe, but you're really enjoying enjoy how they use him in the movies, I highly recommend you get all these OGs and of course go further back. Get the classic, uh, you know, Bronze Age Thanos story with Adam Warlock and the Avengers, all of which are in trade now. Um, of course, the death of Captain Marvel is also essential, but it's it's a pleasure to to see Starlin cutting loose on on you know, arguably his most important creation. So. Great stuff. That was why I just want to talk a little bit about a couple of books. Ready, gentlemen, please uh, fire away anything else you want to uh, bring to the table. Uh, well, I've got, I've got something for you guys. Ah! Oh, it's time once again for Muddle the Bird. <laughs> I love being at the home for this because I can do it whenever I want. <laughs> oh, what fun it is to writhe. The power, the, he's drunk with power, ladies and gentlemen. It's already gone to his head. Mwah. Murd, uh, uh, are you ready for some more? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming the position now, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has some terrible connotations. All right, go ahead. That is not at all awkward. Uh, I... Uh, <laughs> We'll be assuming Robert Christensen's position today. Uh, hello, my fellow geeks. As a long, long, long-time listener, I hope this email finds you all well as summer comes to a close and we prepare for another beautiful fall season. Let's just take that all in. <laughs> Being a fellow collegiate professional, I hope that Chris enjoy, uh, enjoys an enjoyable semester shaping the hearts and minds of a new freshman class. I keep pants in my thoughts and prayers as his adventures and willingness to bear his soul on the podcast over the years has made him feel like an old friend. I wish Adam and his family well as they prepare for another holiday season that he says fast approaching, but I'll say has passed. But I must keep my mind word, uh, my kind words to a minimum as I prepare to do battle and muddle the murder. <laughs> really hoping that Simonson Batman is still up for grabs. Well, it's not, but what is up for grabs? <laughs> uh, well, how does a Tony Aiken's Wonder Woman sketch grab you, Robert? Hopefully good. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if he gets it. Uh, let's, we, he starts you off, uh, Murd, with a DC pre-1970. <laughs> In Brave and the Bold, number 85, cover date of September 1969. When the newly voted senator for Gotham City is shot before he can vote on an important anti-crime bill, Bruce Wayne is selected to finish the rest of the senator's term during his recovery so that the crucial deciding vote for the bill can be made. Meanwhile, as Batman, Bruce attempts to find out who was responsible for having the senator shot and along the way teams up with Green Arrow to bring the shooter to justice just in time for Bruce to vote in favor of the crime bill. What was the name of the senator that was shot? 
Oh, this sounds an awful lot like a Bob Haney story, but they mostly were in Brave and the Bold in those days. And, you know, I'd be willing to bet I probably have read it, but um, the name of the senator is not sticking with me. Um, Robert Chalmers. The answer is Senator Paul Cathcart. Yeah, I okay. I recognize that name now that I hear it. Yes, it's I. I have read this story. I must have, but yeah. The Cathcart Towers Hotel. Sorry, I had, I had to do that. <laughs> why, why, why did you have to do that, Chris? Uh, it's a fish called Wanda. It's one of my ah, all-time favorite films. That is ah. a question. It's a hilarious scene involving the Cathcart Towers Hotel. So if, you, if you've seen the movie, you, people understand. But if not, I highly recommend it. it's one of the greatest comedies ever put to film. So I absolutely oh. do recognize the name Senator Cathcart now that you're saying it. <laughs> and murd early enough in my head before you said it, I thought Robert Chalmers too. So, wow, that's yeah. peculiar incidence of synchronicity there, Chris. Indeed, I'm honored. I thought Super Nintendo Chalmers. All right. Uh, <laughs> Moving on to Marvel 1970 to 2000, and uh, considering that uh, Mr. Eberly just discussed Conan the Barbarian, we have a Conan the Barbarian question. Ooh. Issue 16, cover date July 1972. Conan, now a member of an Aesir war party, is just finishing off a band of veneer in the snowy plains, but soon stumbles and falls due to his injuries. A beautiful, scantily clad maiden appears to him. And of course. She, of course. And when she tempts him a little too much, he chases her lustily toward the mountains, knowing she might be luring him to an ambush. When her frost giant brothers appear, he swiftly deals with them and continues his chase, finally catching her and prepares to rape her. Okay. She prays to her father, the god, uh, is it pronounced Ymir? Yeah, Emir. Emir, to to save her, and she vanishes in a flash of blue light. Conan collapses and is rescued by his Aesir companions, when, while, who, while they don't entirely believe his story, are disquieted with the remnants of a dress Conan holds in his hands. What was the name of the scantily clad maiden? Oh, boy. And I have even less excuse for this because I just recently, over the summer, read, uh, I think it was a Kurt Busiek and Carrie Nord retelling of this precise story. Uh, Great stuff. Yes, from the Dark Horse uh, Conan series of the early 2000s. Uh, Yes, The Frost Giant's Daughter was the title of the story. I have read the story too, Murd. Yeah. Uh, Tialfi. Chris, any guesses? No, I can visualize the woman, but I, I can't remember her name. You came very close, Murd, but it's Atali. Oh! Oh, wow. That's like A T A L I, or how's that? A T A L I, you got mm. it. That was damn close, Murd. Woo! That is the firstborn daughter of, of Emir. And we move on to post 2000, and this one will be Image. From Savage Dragon, issue 202, cover date February 2015. I love how much detail he's put into this. Stripped of his lightning powers, Malcolm Dragon finds that he can no longer rely on the one thing that kept him alive. Now he faces his most fearsome challenge yet, at a time when he's at his most vulnerable. Malcolm Dragon fights the deadly damsels of the vicious circle. Raptor, Vane, Samurai, 
Insect, Tigress, Volcanic, Climax, and Double Page. Spelled P-A-I-G-E. That is the best name for a villain ever. (laughs) Which notable member of the Savage Dragon universe's vicious circle meet their demise in this issue? Hmm. (sighs) Well, yeah, I I think I'm going to be... Posting a little something to to Robert in the near future here. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to remember the name of any Savage Dragon villain. Uh, I, I remember the Vicious Circle well enough, uh, and it, it's just uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to say the Overlord. The answer and another glorious pun of a name. Heavy flow. <laughs> Wasn't that Peter Griffin's uh, lady wrestling name? <laughs> I think you may be right. Uh, an Eric Larson creation that first appeared in issue 32, whose power set included the ability to control her menstrual blood. Uh-huh. She fired powerful blasts of the substance out of her you-know-what. True story. Eek. Actually, I think it was Peter's sister's wrestling name, and then uh, Peter dressed up as a lady wrestler named Maxie Patty to take her down. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But knowing that doesn't help me in the least, I have been muddled. He sure has. Wow. So, Should I be vanquished in my attempt to best Adam? I raise my battle hammer high and salute the all-knowing scribe of Thesis of the Crisis. Until we meet again on the battlefield, I wish you all well. May your comics be bountiful and your time to read them be plentiful. Robbie in Ohio. Robbie, great sentiments. Thanks so much. And I, great questions. I lay my broadsword at your feet, Robbie. I mean, I, I came ugh, this close to one or two of them, but... Yeah, by golly, it was, it was just more than I could handle in the end. So, I'm afraid it's a little late for that Simonson Batman, but hopefully this uh, Wonder Woman drawing will be a, a nice consolation prize. And I, I'm happy to add that uh, we actually found our remaining supply of, uh, of prize art from our uh, esteemed anonymous listener who uh, sends uh, donations in to be used as prizes. Um, so, I, if I'd been muddled the last time we did this, I would have had to improvise somehow, but now... Got some actual artwork that I can send. So any of you out there who are interested in competing in this Muddle Emerge trivia competition we do from time to time, uh, please send uh, your submissions uh, consisting of three questions, one Marvel, one DC, and one Independent, also broken down by timeline as uh, pre-1970, between 1970 and 2000, and post-2000, respectively. Um, And just email them all to uh, comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. And don't forget to provide the answers for these questions as well, because one or two people have uh, in the past forgotten to do that. (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right. What else on your docket, gentlemen? I got a few things. Uh, So uh, first off, uh, have you all read Young Justice number one? I have not read it yet. I apologize. Uh, I have. All right. Great. You, You guys can talk about it. Spoil it away. It's fine with me. All right. Well, I, I, I read it to, I read it tonight. Uh, I actually it was the first single issue of a comic that I bought in over a year at the comic shop. Wow. I went to Forbidden Planet uh, shortly after work yesterday uh, in, in Manhattan uh, right before catching a movie. And I got it. I had to get the, the cover 
that followed that lovely internet meme. Uh, the meme is of a guy uh, turning around from his girlfriend to to look at the butt of a girl walking by, and the girlfriend's looking on all shocked. Only this one is Connor Superman walking walking by a girl catching his uh, turning around and catching his uh, his butt as he walks by, and the boyfriend being aghast. Huh? It's it's a fantastic image. I couldn't resist it, and it came with a digital copy, so why not? Um, but I, I read that uh, earlier today. It is Bendis' take on the world of Young Justice with art by the amazing Patrick Gleason, and I could not be happier. Uh, anyone who's ever heard me speak knows that I'm a huge Young Justice fan, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a surprise for me to say that I am very happy to have them back. No, I have not watched the animated series yet. I have not given DC's universe my money but I, chances are once the season is complete, I will go ahead and do so. But this first issue captures their voices pretty well. I was worried about that a little bit since uh, Bendis comics tend to have a very Bendis voice uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, like people sitting around a table and having conversation. And that doesn't always work, especially with youngsters, um, even though he's written, you know, Miles Morales for years and and a young Peter Parker for years in the Ultimate Universe. I was a little bit worried, and he manages to capture their voices very decently in this. Not quite Peter David level, but I'd say uh, we're introduced to uh, Cassie Sandsmark for the first time in years uh, as as Wonder Girl since, I believe, the end of the original New 52 Teen Titans. We haven't seen her. Um, and she's uh, in Manhattan uh, starting a job and going to college, and uh, Tim Drake is there as well. Without the second R in his costume and referring him to himself as Robin. So clearly I missed something because last I checked, he was still running around as Red Robin in Detective. But I haven't read those in a while, so I clearly need to catch up to find out exactly what happened to lead him to start calling himself Robin again. Frankly, I'm happy because that extra R did nothing for me. He was still Robin and he still dressed like him, so whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, – we're we're treated to uh, not not only uh, Young Justice, but we get a lot of Gem World in this. Um, oh we wow! Get, we get the introduction of a of a teenage uh, Green Lantern called Teen Lantern, uh, which which is interesting, and I, I wonder where that's exactly going to go here. We've got the daughter of Jonah Hex, Ginny Hex, showing up. Uh, wow! From, from Texas, as as one of the uh, soon to be members of the team and Bart Allen impulse uh, is back in town and he seems to know a lot more than he should, which means I definitely need to catch up on my flash because it feels like he's, he's almost like Deadpool esque in his knowing about the universe, things that other people should not. Um, I feel like he may actually know things about the previous universe along the lines of what Wally did when he oh, first interesting. Um, especially with the reveal at the end of this issue, um, which again, I, I mean, I, I might as well go ahead and say that there are spoilers in this since I've been spoiling enough that uh, Connor Hawk, uh, sorry, Connor, uh, Con L uh, shows up at the end of this, uh, you know, clone Superboy, and he has a scruffy beard and he looks like he's definitely been, uh, dealing with something for a while as he's certainly aged 
And that's something that Superboy does not really do. But he uh, looks like he's probably aged maybe two or three years since the last time we saw him. But he knows who Bart is, and and Bart definitely knows who he is. And Tim does too, or at least he says at one point, like, it's not Young Justice without without Connor. And I yet again, I need to catch up on my, on my detective because last I checked, he still had no idea who, who, who Connor Kent was. Because um, I know that there was a, an issue where a future version of Tim comes back and mentions Connor, and Tim is like, who's Connor? So clearly something happened, or I'm missing something. But the thing that I definitely want to hear Adam discuss is earlier on in this issue, they mention that there have been seven crises huh? in the history of the DC universe, um, all of which are related to Earth. And that that's the reason why, you know, whenever changes happen, we can all go back to one of these crises as one of the reasons why this change occurred. And it's one of the reasons why people from Gem World appear to be showing up on Earth and uh, why this major conflict is occurring and why this gathering of people winds up happening the way it did. I love the art. Writing's on par. I am definitely going to be picking up more of this. Welcome back, Young Justice. I missed you so. And Mr. Murd. Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I had probably even more questions than you had, uh, Ian, as far as um, you know, what's, who should remember what, uh, which versions of characters, of certain characters should still be in continuity and remembered by other characters or shouldn't be. Um, I think I'm even further out of the loop than you are there. And so... Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I do have kind of a sneaking suspicion, though, that uh, you know, uh, the answers to these questions will not be easily had simply by going back and reading recent DC releases. You know, You're you, probably right. You said uh, something happened uh, in recent comics that uh, led to uh, well, the, the, this uh, configuration of continuity. I think what happened was uh, DC hired Bendis. <laughs> <laughs> and Bendis didn't feel like... Uh, pushing the chess pieces around or even doing his research to know where those chess pieces had been on the chessboard prior to this. Uh, I, I think this is going to be just kind of – the whole Wonder Comics imprint is supposed to be kind of semi-in continuity, which is really a way you could describe most DC comics at this point. I don't, know, I don't think there are that many people at DC who really know or care what's uh, in canon and what isn't right now. Um, and they just keep uh, making things more complicated with little soft reboots uh, going up here and there. Uh, DC Rebirth being one uh, signal example. Um, but yeah, um, all that aside, uh, the, the, so this comic, uh, th those first two pages to which you alluded there, Ian, held me spellbound. Um, you know, we, we open uh, with uh, a speaker in the extra-dimensional realm of the gem world uh, talking to... Uh, the being who was uh, sort of the big bad of the original Amethyst Princess of Gemworld series, Dark Opal, and explaining to him all this stuff about uh, Earth crises. And apparently uh, Gemworld has been suffering some pretty serious, uh, catastrophic level setbacks, um, for which they've uh, been at a loss to explain. And... Uh, uh, Dark Opal himself seems to be practically catatonic uh, with despair, and uh, here's this person lecturing him about uh, Earth crises and uh, how there have been seven such things that happened to uh, uh, reconfigure reality in the Earth dimension, and every time that happens, even those existential planes that uh, 
abut the Earth dimension, even though they shouldn't really be affected, um, nonetheless are. And uh, their reality is shifted and uh, twisted and folded and spindled in strange and unsettling ways. And uh, whatever problems they're having on Gemworld, uh, the speaker concludes, can probably be tied back to Earth, which is also where the speaker is from, he mentions. And uh, the second page is just an extreme close-up drawn by Pat Gleason of uh, Dark Opal's... uh, blue and black mottled puss suddenly coming to life and uh, saying the single word earth and then uh, as far as what those seven crises are i mean i don't know if uh, bendis has uh, done the actual math here or if he just picked the number seven out of a hat um <laughs> but I, I could i can name off at least like five of them off the top of my head the original crisis and infinite earths of course zero hour uh, infinite crisis final crisis and probably flashpoint as far as the other two yeah jury is out um multiversity perhaps uh what was that multiversity perhaps or 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 there was also a justice wasn't there also a justice league event involving the uh involving the anti-monitor somewhat recently that jeff johns wrote or oh right 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 the whole uh, I, I can't even remember what it's called now but yeah it involved uh, the uh, crime syndicate of earth three it had yep. uh, the monitor versus the anti-monitor versus dark side i don't know if that was uh quite big dark side war that could be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, uh, Shane and I would, were talking that story up quite a bit when it was happening, and now I can't even remember what it was called. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> bode well for future muddles, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so the story progresses from there, and um, the, the, the various members of Young Justice, um, one by one, kind of happened to turn up together on at the same place on the same day when uh, these when emissaries of the gem world show up uh, with uh, hostility on their minds and demand to speak to superman for reasons that uh, are they don't bother to explain either to the bystanders or to the reader um but uh, pr- presumably to demand accountability from earth about all these crises that have happened and to uh, look into the possibility of maybe undoing a couple of them and uh, the story was uh, a little bit of a turnoff for me in, in terms of its uh, jaggedly uneven structure and pacing. Um, it was just kind of a lot of uh, weird things happening with not a whole lot to tie them together or explain them. Um, I felt a little bit at sea as a reader, honestly. Um, I will give uh, Bendis credit for injecting plenty of youthful verve and energy and bravado into this. I'll agree with you, Ian, that uh, my fears were put to rest by the way uh, Bendis uh, characterized these young heroes. Uh, They they, they seemed to be more or less in character. Um, They they didn't just assume that that, that lengthy, rambling uh, guy sitting around a smoky poker table, uh, uh, Bendis, one-size-fit-all, univoice. Um, yeah, they, 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 they talked like different people and they, they talked like young people. And uh, as you said, his experience writing, you know, not only, uh, Miles Morales and young ultimate Peter Parker, but also the all new X-Men, uh, from a couple of years ago, he's, Bendis' skill set has expanded considerably and he's learned to write in more than one voice and more than one style. I have to give him credit for how far he's come. Um, yeah, his style, as far as uh, character voices, didn't turn me off at all. It was just kind of the the structuring of the plot and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the odd cadence with which the story beats occurred. It, it, it was all just kind of chaotic. Um, I mean, one could argue that uh, it's the chaos of the story is kind of a structural metaphor for the uh, 
upheavals occurring within the lives of young people, such as the young characters that make up the Young Justice roster. But uh, I don't know if I'd buy that even if you made that argument. To me, it was just kind of a, a mess of a story. Um, uh, the, the, the characters, though, were there and on point, as we've said. And uh, it was nice to see Bart as impulse. I don't know if, as you said, Ian, he's been hanging around the Flash uh, series. And I, I, like you, I picked up on the meta-awareness he seemed to be displaying. About how he's, uh, he keeps saying it's happening, it's happening, it's totally happening. And I'm wondering, what's happening? Is it just uh, the reuniting of uh, this Young Justice team, that, you know, the, the, uh, the reunion of a team that has yet to exist in this version of reality and that you somehow remember? Or are you talking about something bigger? Are you, when you say it's finally happening, are you saying, Bart, that uh, perhaps uh, this post-Flashpoint reality is finally unraveling and we'll get back to where we were before Flashpoint happened with the old DC reality. They keep teasing us with that. Um, But uh, I'm probably just reading more into it than I ought to be. Um, But yeah, and the fact that he then finds his way into, the various characters find their way into the gem world. Robin finds himself face-to-face with uh, the uh, post-Flashpoint version of Amethyst herself, who's going to be a member of the team. Um, Bart, as, as you said, Ian, finds his way to Connell, wherever he's been all this time. And, uh, and I, I do – they're calling him Connor, but when I see him in that costume, which is his 90s outfit, you know, with the fade cut, the disco belts, the leather jacket and everything, I, I, I kind of have to take another further step back and call him Connell because Connor yeah. was a name that he uh, acquired around the time Jeff John started writing the Teen Titans series long about uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, and when he uh, – Connor kind of developed a different, moodier personality from what he'd exhibited in his uh, – solo days as Superboy and uh, during the time period when he was a part of the first Young Justice. Um, But yeah, Bendis seems to be just kind of setting the clock back to happier, uh, more exuberant times here. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that because uh, what I've seen done with young hero characters in the post-Flashpoint DC universe as helmed by other writers like Scott Lobdell has kind of left me cold. Uh, So whether it makes sense for the current continuity or not, I'm kind of glad to see things going roughly in the direction they're going. Um, As far as the new characters, um, Ginny Hex uh, shows a lot of promise. Um, Are are you sure that she's uh, Jonah Hex's daughter, though, Ian? Uh, it may, it may, it may be, it may be. I may just be reading into things, but uh, but she mentioned something about her father, so I just sort of made an assumption there. Well, yeah, I'm sure her father is a member of the Hex bloodline. I was just kind of assuming. That, and, of course, Joan Hex has been known to time travel a little bit, so maybe he did uh, do a stint in the 21st century and, and sire some children there before returning to his native 19th to die as history prescribes. But right. it, it could be that she's like uh, Hex's great-granddaughter, too, and the father to whom she alludes is just Hex's grandson, you know, another member of the same bloodline. Possibility. But yeah, whatever. However, she's related to the original. It's, it's almost guaranteed that she's related to him in some way. And to see kind of a, a modern-day uh, Texas girl uh, living up to this uh, Wild West bounty bounty hunter forebear of hers is be interesting. Uh, Teen Lantern jury is very much out. Um, you know, another one of the shortcomings of this uh, first issue, as far as um, you know, uh, plot structure, is, is the introduction of the various characters. Teen Lantern just kind of gets spit into a panel at some point and says, hey, I'm new. This is nuts. I'm here. And uh, you, I don't think we even really get to see her face. She's inside of a, a whatever kind of ring construct she's wielding the whole time. Um, and that, that character kind of has me scratching my head because it, it, it's long been... 
it, a question among fandom has always been why did Green Lantern um, avoid the uh, the trend of uh, junior partners that seem to uh, be a part of the Silver Age Renaissance at DC Comics. Uh, you know, we had Kid Flash, we had Wonder Girl, we had Aqualad. Why did Green Lantern never have a partner? And uh, that uh, that hypothetical uh, junior sidekick Green Lantern is often given the placeholder name Teen Lantern in fanish discussions. And uh, here's Bendis kind of leaning into that and uh, bringing this character in out of nowhere, pre- pretty much just because he's Bendis and he can. <laughs> <laughs> He likes to do things that uh, he, Bendis, can do for no other reason than that. Um, so, yeah, finding out what this, this character's background might be interesting or it might just be silly. I don't know. But uh, it, it would have been nice if she had gotten a little bit more play here in this first issue. It's just part of the unevenness. of, of it's, yeah, it's, So you're getting the impression that uh, while I like what he did with the characters, I didn't necessarily like uh, the, the, the story he concocted to try and put them all out there all at once. Sure. Yeah, so... Uh, it's, it, 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 I, I, I'm not as big a fan of Young Justice as you are, Ian, but I don't think very many people are as big a fan of Young Justice as you are. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, <laughs> I have close to a complete run. I loved what uh, Peter David and Todd knocked it with the characters back then. I, I have a soft spot for them myself, and I think there are far worse creators to uh, reintroduce them to a contemporary young reading audience than Bendis. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to have the patience uh, to follow along with Bendis for as many issues as it may take him to get these characters into uh, roadworthy condition, as it were. Um, I, I didn't think this first issue was uh, really that great story-wise. Uh, tonally, it was very good. Character-wise, I have hope. Uh, but I may need to wait until this first arc is over and done with before I start reading it on a monthly basis. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. And uh, to answer your question about Impulse, uh, he came back at the end of uh, the Flash War uh, that happened recently over in the pages of Flash. Uh, there was a whole thing going on. I, I, I didn't read the uh, the story itself. I just heard from other parties that uh, at the conclusion of that, uh, uh, there's a – I think it was I think it was a Wally trying to get his family back, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. And uh, instead of that happening uh, – Bart winds up coming through uh, a wormhole of sorts, and he's back in, in the DC universe. And he appears to have memories of the pre-Flashpoint uh, continuity? I would assume from this issue that that's exactly what's going on, mm-hmm. but uh, your, your guess is as good as mine. I got some comics to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you there, Ian. And then yeah. some. Yeah, but it, it does seem to me like uh, he's kind of stepping into the role that Wally had until he uh, was... Uh, well, he became uh, indisposed as a result of uh, events elsewhere in the DC universe. Yeah. Shall we say that? that so now, uh, Impulse is assuming that role of uh, lifeline to the uh, hopefully temporarily defunct uh, pre-Flashpoint DC continuity. Hopefully. Well, considering how much I love the original Young Justice, you gentlemen have more than ever excited me to read this issue. And Ian, I apologize; I just didn't get a chance to read that. Copy graciously sent along, but I'll be looking forward to that. No problem. Uh, other other comics I got to uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, I actually started uh, after seeing into the Spider Verse. I was very much in a Spider Man mood, so I started reading uh, the Spider Geddon crossover, uh, which is the sequel to Spider Verse that Marvel has been putting. Uh, it was a story that Dan Slott helped create. But Christos Gage is the main writer of the series. And it had a couple of tie-in issues as well. Uh, they did an edge, just like they did with Edge of, uh, Edge of Spider-Verse. 
Um, and uh, this one uh, includes uh, the the punk Spider-Man. Uh, and uh, we also got another story with uh, with SP slash slash DER that showed up in the movie, uh, plus a couple of other Spider-Men that we hadn't seen before. But the issue in particular that really caught my eye was Spider-Geddon number zero. Um, and the reason for that is because I, I got a chance to play through the first, I'd say maybe the first 30, 35 minutes of the Spider-Man PlayStation 4 game uh, over over the holiday break. A uh, friend of mine wound up getting it, and I, I was over at their place, so I, I wound up playing through the first uh, the first mission, essentially, uh, which included a battle against Kingpin. He seems to be everywhere with Spider-Man these days. <laughs> But uh, this, this uh, the game itself, the way that uh, Into the Spider-Verse is like it, it, it creates the perfect comic book world. This is like bringing the comic book world into the real world. It is so picture perfect gorgeous in its realism that you just you feel like you are Spider-Man swinging through the streets of New York. Um, and items that they that they were unable to uh, secure the rights to, they put a mar- a, their own Marvel flair on. Like instead of the uh, the bull by Wall Street, uh, it's it's a statue of Lockjaw. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's pretty fun. Uh, they couldn't get the rights to one the One World Trade, so they have a stand in, but it looks enough like it where you don't. Really- Plus, there's a couple other changes here and there, like uh, Avengers Tower is in the uh, is in the skyline, and uh, and a couple of other you know fun little Easter eggs thrown in from here and there. But uh, issue zero of Spider Geddon actually introduces the Spider-Man from the Spider-Man game into the comic books, um, and it's the and it's our first time we get to see this character. It's actually from the looks of things directly after the events of of the game. Um, because they do reference uh, things that happened in that, uh, where basically uh, the superior Spider-Man, uh, you know, Doc Ock, is going to recruit this Spider-Man into the war against uh, against the, uh, you know, the, 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 those that they're that they're battling in Spider-Verse. Of course, now I can't think of their names. Something like the Intruders or something like that. Uh, the, or the, the, inf- the Enforcers. No, no, no. Uh, the the actual the actual villains of the of the Spider Verse event. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I, it was either the like the incumbents or the intruders or something like that. Uh, Morlun was one of them. Uh, you know the uh, the often uh, maligned uh, villain from uh, from the uh, you know from the other uh, from J. Michael Straczynski's run. Yep. Yep. Um, wound up being reintroduced, and uh, he basically he has a whole spider family that that he's dealing with, and they're basically all trying to eat. All of the Spider-Man for sustenance. That's basically the the, the plot of the original Spider-Verse crossover. Um, and this has, uh, you know, Doc Ock, Superior Spider-Man, trying to get uh, the you know the, the the game version of Spider-Man to help him out. Um, in this world, uh, Mary Jane is a Lois Lane type. She works at a uh, at at a newspaper. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson has a podcast. It's hilarious, huh. um, but Probably the biggest difference is that there was almost a mentor situation between Spider-Man and Otto Octavius, um, and uh, and you get to see that unfold throughout the game itself. So it's 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 a very inter- it's very thing to say the least to see Superior Spider-Man Doc Ock, uh, you know, going back and back and forth in conversation with a Spider-Man who just essentially quote unquote lost his Otto Octavius. 
which is interesting. And the the art itself is very realistic and beautiful. Clayton uh, Crane is the artist on this. Um, and I, I don't know if I'd ever seen his stuff before, but I certainly want to want to see more of it with the uh, the color artist of Israel Silva uh, adding uh, some really, really good uh, stuff. Uh, sorry, he was the colorist in the in the in the second part, but uh, it was just Clayton Crane doing uh, doing art as a, in, uh, as a whole in this one. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And it's nice to see that character introduced into the Spider-Verse in general. Spider-Geddon itself. Uh, takes place mainly because uh, as the superior octopus after the events of uh, Dan Slott's run, uh, mm. uh, he's he has a unlimited supply of clone bodies, and he's using the tech that the that that the uh, the inheritors that's what their name I, I was thinking of that for forever that the inheritors use to keep themselves alive. Uh, basically, Otto is using now combined with the Jackal's technology and his own technology, and he accidentally signals the inheritors to return, and that's what gathers all the spiders together again. Um, it's it's interesting so far. It's not like it doesn't feel like a force sequel the way, say, Civil War Two did. Um, and it's it's fun enough, but I need I need to read more of the uh, the crossover. I'm only two issues in at this point, and it's still going on. So plenty of stuff to read there. Uh, it's spider wise. At least I got to read some of it. Outstanding, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Clayton uh, Crane did uh, artwork for a Rye series that uh, Valiant did a little while ago. Ah, and it, okay. it looked fantastic there, so I, I know just what kind of uh, beautiful realism you're talking about. Yep, definitely. Uh, well, actually, I'm just going to stand right on your shoulders here, Ian, since uh, the, the one comic book, well, recent released comic book that I read, other than Young Justice, that I was going to bring to the table is uh, very closely related to uh, Spider-Geddon, and that is the recently begun um, Superior Spider-Man monthly comic that uh, Marvel nice. is now publishing, also written by Christos Engage, who, as you said, is the architect of, of Spider-Geddon. Uh, so he's kind of uh, charting the, the, uh, the, the, the life course of Otto Octavius in the Marvel Universe right now. Um, there, there was a Superior Octopus one-shot uh, a little while ago, which is kind of like the zero issue for the ongoing Superior Spider-Man. And then there was also a Suspe- Superior Spider-Man number one that came out just this past month, um, which is being drawn by Mike Hawthorne with inks by uh, Starman inker Wade Von Grawbadger. Um, so, uh, the, the thing with Dr. Octopus, uh, well, Otto Octavius now is, uh, well, as Ian says, he's got a, uh, access to, uh, the Jackal's, uh, uh, Pyramid International, whatever his company was called, uh, cloning technology. And, uh, he has cloned himself, uh, a body, uh, which, uh, well, similar to, uh, Connell's actually is uh, this sort of impossible alloy of, uh, the genetic material of, uh, two male mortal foes. Uh, he, he's, uh, his body is now a combination of his own genetic material and Peter Parker's uh, spider-powered DNA. Uh, so he's kind of a hybrid of himself and Spidey, and uh, he calls himself Professor Elliot Tolliver, and he has done what so many other Marvel characters before him have done when they needed to gain a new lease on life and spin off from their current situation. He moved west uh, <laughs> and ended up in beautiful San Francisco. Um, so there he is. He's, uh, he's got a teaching position at, um, an accelerated, uh, curriculum university called Horizon University. He's, uh, lecturing there. Um, and in his new identity, he's also, um, 
Uh, he was a superior octopus for a while, but uh, the superior octopus one-shot revealed that uh, there's still a lot of bad uh, connections to that name from the uh, Secret Empire event when Otto Octavius was working with, the se- with, uh, with Hydra. Uh, so he then adopts that identity and becomes Superior Spider-Man once again. And uh, so he's setting himself up there. Um, pretty, a lot of his supporting cast has followed him out there. Uh, the, 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 uh, the genius little person scientist uh, Anna Marie... Of, uh, I can't think of her last. It, it was Italian. Uh, was it? it was very Italian. Yeah, and and she she fell in love with him, didn't she? Uh, oh yes, yes, they were lovers. Yeah. But uh, Octavius, yeah. yeah. uh, she she learned something about what Octavius's uh, real plans were, and uh, he sacrificed himself to save her life, but in a way that she considered uh, selfish and churlish. Uh, so yeah, huh? he's yeah. She is no longer. Pro Octavius. She, being a genius in her own right, figures out almost immediately that Professor Elliot Tolliver is actually Otto Octavius in a new clone body, and she threatens to turn him over to the authorities. She's brought the living brain back with her, too. That uh, classic relic of the very oh, early Amazing Spider Man comics. Yep. Yep, he's there as well. Um, Marconi. Marconi is her last name. Mark- oh, thank you, Ian. I knew it was something Italian and something science related. So, <laughs> same as the famous inventor of, of the radio. Um, so, yes, um, uh, Dr. Octopus has uh, – what's really gotten me hooked into this series is that uh, Christos Engage uh, seems to share our weakness for uh, B, C, and D-list characters. And he's brought back one of my all-time favorite villain teams, the Night Shift, um, oh. who used to fight the West Coast Avengers. It's, it's basically a bunch of old Spider-Woman villains um, and a few other surprise odds and ends thrown in. Uh, the standout character here is Digger, who was actually a, a Marvel <laughs> horror comic host. <laughs> the Digger. And exactly. He was the, the, uh, the Crypt Keeper figure hosting the Tales of... Tower of, of Shadows. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Excellent, Chris. You don't get muddled today. <laughs> so he's there, and he's spitting out all these uh, macabre, terrible, gory puns, and his own teammates are constantly telling him to shut up. Uh, are, the bro- are the brothers Grimm in that team? Yes, they are. And okay, uh, they yeah. appear in the Superior Octopus. So, yes, uh, Dr. Well, Octavius uh, puts these villains on retainer and uh, it makes them his shadow cabinet, if you will. Uh, they're his, his underlings. They're going to continue pretending to be criminals, but they're actually going to be on his retainer and help him uh, to, uh, to battle crime. And uh, just, just having them along as supporting characters is enough to guarantee my three ninety nine to Marvel on a monthly basis for this <laughs> series. And uh, Engage is uh, uh, Christos Engage has got some other interesting plot twists in mind here. Uh, at the end of the first issue, uh, we, we see that Superior Spider-Man is going to have to battle a Herald of Galactus, uh, which is uh, no 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 mean feat in itself. Uh, so yeah, yeah, th- this is going to be one of those little uh, sort of uh, B-tier supporting character uh, Marvel series that I tend to like to collect and champion as I have done with a couple of different Scarlet Spider series in the past yep. uh, including the recently concluded Peter David one which I was sorry to see go and uh, like the Jerry Conway Carnage series from a few years before that uh, so this is the latest in a series of uh, Spider family titles that I'm deciding to seize on uh, in lieu of reading a comic book about the actual Spider-Man and I think it's going to be a fun ride from what we've seen so far. And it's probably going to cross over pretty closely, I would think, with the spider Ganon event that uh, you were telling us about a few minutes ago, Ian. Yeah. I, I read Superior Octopus and actually really enjoyed it. So I, I'm definitely going to have to pick up uh, Superior Spider-Man and, and, and see how it is because 
even that superior that the uh the supporting cast a lot of that is just basically dan slot's uh supporting cast mm-hmm. located to san francisco and it's nice to see that, that they haven't been forgotten even as a new writer takes over the main spider-man title so and no i'm sorry Ian, go ahead no no I, that, that, I was basically done and i also wanted to mention um the superior spider-man the original slot run was outstanding uh I, it really was. I think it's one of the strongest Spider-Man series, you know, of let's say this decade. Um, and uh, I, I if, you, if, if a listener are interested in Spider-Man, you haven't read that that series, I highly recommend it. It was outstanding. That's right. And he makes. He, I mean, Otto Octavius is one of you know one of the top tier Spider-Man villains, and he really takes that character some interesting new directions. It's it's wonderful. Well, from, from what I've been hearing about the uh, the Superior Spider-Man run is that. Uh, in a similar fashion of the way that he was, you know, using, <clears throat> you know, using criminals uh, to his uh, to his behest. I think he's going to be essentially using Hydra in that way uh, to basically try and, you know, use them as his foot soldiers. Hmm. Uh, so that that could be that could be pretty interesting, uh, considering what happened in the Superior Octopus issue, where they try to attack him and basically try to get him to continue to work for them the way that he did during the Secret Empire. So hmm. you never know what's going to happen that way. All right. One other thing. May I spat, spat about something for a moment, gentlemen? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, kind of a flashback. I recently acquired m- the bulk in trade of the classic DC Vertigo series, Sandman Mystery Theater, which I, I read for much of its original run. Um, and I've talked on the air on, on occasion over the years how I consider this one of the great finite series, and I'm just very excited to. I'm going to re- read the whole series again. I haven't read it, you know, since it ended. Uh, I think that was 1999, maybe something like that. Uh, so, if you love noir, if you love Golden Age, but you want to see the Golden Age addressed in like the, the seamier underbelly of the Golden Age, this is one of the best, certainly one of the best Virgo series I think I've ever produced, and, and for me, it's one of the best. One of the, let's say one of the best. I mean, he's a superhero quote, but it's it's so much more than that. And it's Matt Wagner and and uh, Stephen uh, Siegel and and Guy Davis. I, I, this is from pretty much from beginning to end. This this is essentially a perfect series for me. So I'm really looking forward to returning to it and and giving it another read. Did you get it in trade or in singles? Trade. Uh, Daniel and Bill wanted to uh, winnow down some of their trades, and uh, I helped them sell a bunch to a, a comic book dealer friend of mine, and, and I. I, I bought separately from them. Uh, they're, they're, they had volumes two through two through seven, so I'm going to pick up the rest wherever I can find them and have the, the complete run because it's. I've never owned the, the the complete run, even though I read it through the years. It's it's a masterpiece. So very nice. Can't, looking forward to it. What else, gentlemen? Anything? Uh, I've got some media stuff that I that I got to watch recently uh, that I want to touch on real quick. Um, Please. I got a chance uh, the other day to uh, check out uh, the pre-premiere, uh, as it, it's not actually out here in the States yet, of the new Dragon Ball Super movie uh, that, that said that's being released next week in theaters as part of a Fathom Events. Um, in fact, it might even be <clears throat> further than a, than a Fathom Event, because uh, this, this time 20th Century Fox is dealing with the distribution for it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's called Dragon Ball Super Broly. Um, and it's actually uh, the first time that the character – Broly is a character that was introduced years ago in a Dragon Ball Z movie. Um, and the thing about the Dragon Ball Z movies, for anybody who's unaware, is that they're sort of like side continuity. Like they basically place them in between 
arcs of the show. And even the creator of the series, uh, you know, Akira Toriyama, has said that they're not really in continuity, that they're more like a side universe. Like, if you want to, you know, put it that way, like, I had nothing to do with this. This is, you know, that story. So one of the most uh, one of the most popular characters to come out of those films, in fact, there were, I think, three films that had to do with him was Broly. He was essentially the Incredible Hulk as a Saiyan. Um, very powerful, very simple minded and almost like a, a weapon, a weapon you could point in the direction of Goku and Vegeta. And here we have a movie that acts as a continuation to the series that recently ended Dragon Ball Super. Um, and it's, uh, essentially retelling the story of Broly only with a lot more nuance and personality. And they have a half hour, an hour and a half to work with. Uh, I think it's an hour and 41 minutes uh, total. And in doing so, they actually give, they breathe life into the character of Broly. And he's more than just a, you know, a monstrous, you know, simple minded Saiyan. He actually has some really, he has some real heart to him. And you, you get a feeling that, you know, some really bad things have happened to it in his life. Like he was literally sent to a far off distant world because the king of the Saiyans realized he was more powerful than his son. So rather than have to deal with him, he just shunned him off to a, to a world to die. And his father ran after him in a, in a pod to ensure his safety. And the thing about Broly is that uh, all Saiyans have tails. And any same with a tail, if they stare at the moon long enough, a full moon long enough, they will transform into this giant uh, ape-like beast. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Broly is that even when his tail is not there, he can basically channel the power of the ape-like beast without actually transforming into one. And it gives him this green aura around him because pretty much everything in Dragon Ball, is, uh, when it comes to Saiyans, are food, are food puns. So Broly is broccoli, so of course she's green. Huh. Um, and uh, it, it's it's a really it's it gorgeously executed movie when it comes to uh, a combination of like you know computer effects with traditional animation. Uh, the actual fight scenes are very well choreographed, and it's it's nice to see a, a franchise like Dragon Ball continuing. Um, because for years there really wasn't anything uh, to be heard from until the anniversary happened a few years back, and then they decided to revive it for this new series. And uh, Broly, Dragon Ball Super Broly did a really good job of uh, continuing the story, and it has me intrigued on what's coming next, especially with uh, the popularity of the fighting game that's out in the uh, video game universe, uh, Dragon Ball Fighters, having more people interested in Dragon Ball than possibly ever before. So it was it was a good time, and it's nice to see a movie for free. And afterwards, they, there was even free bowling uh, thanks to Funimation. So <laughs> that was that was good times to be had there. And I also yesterday got a chance to see Bumblebee in theaters. Oh, how was that? So I would describe Bumblebee um, as if John Hughes did a Transformers movie. Oh wow. That's high praise as far as I'm concerned. It, it, the story, uh, it's not much of a spoiler to say this, but the story is actually set in the past. Um, it's set in the year 1987. And with the combination of the music they use and the tone uh. that they have, they capture that beautifully. The Transformers 
actually look like the Transformers. The Transformers <laughs> actually act like the Transformers. The Decepticons are the Decepticons. And they just simplify things so well that it's hard to believe we had to go through, like, what was it, five movies, I think, before we got to something this simple and this to the point of the characters. So without spoiling, would you say this is the best Transformers movie? Without a doubt. Without okay. a doubt. Mm, yeah. right. Way less Michael Bay explosions because there's no Michael Bay to be had. And I'd say that uh, they could very easily wind up doing a first class with this and just continue to just base movies before the first movie in order to get around it if they really wanted to. Um, I don't know what they're going to do, but this movie did well enough where I wouldn't be surprised if there's sequels. And it's it was also great to see Bumblebee running around as a, VW, as a VW bug for the first time in a while. So it was good times. Great. Anyway, I want to compliment you, sir. You, are, you give outstanding critiques. Thank you. Thank well you done, much. my friend. Well done. <laughs> so this this movie is in the it's in the same universe as the Bay Transformer films. Then yes, uh, okay. Especially with the by the time the movie's over, you're you're definitely seeing the um, at least some of the aspects of the Bay movies being introduced. I won't spoil gotcha. anything in that aspect, but what I will say though is that. They're 100 percent setting up the Transformers using Earth as a base. Mm. And I and I want to see where that goes in future movies, whether or not they have just, you know, whether they base it on a just one Transformer in the future or whether they base it just, you know, Transformers Origins or something like that as the next one. Because there are Cybertron scenes in this, again, not a spoiler, um, that that are beautifully executed. And oh, wow. I I'm very thrilled that, of course, Peter Cullen is once again the voice of uh, Optimus Prime in this movie. So, can't beat that. So, I, I only saw the first Transformers film. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was, you know, was fun, but, you know, didn't – wasn't earth-shaking for me. I mean, how were the rest of those movies? Because I didn't watch any of them. The second one is horrible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, it's I, I there's very little you can say to that. I mean, basically the only good thing about the second one – um, is is the fact that uh, like some of the voices that that that, that showed up in in it are are good, but mm. that's <laughs> that's a, that's about it. Um, the third one I actually enjoyed a lot more, um, but uh, after that I basically dropped off. Okay, because there have been I think there were two more after that if I remember correctly, and I that was when they changed the cast over. And it just it uh, oh yeah right Leonard Nimoy was a voice in the second one that was the one thing that I actually enjoyed about where oh really huh yeah they, I believe he was the voice of Unicron if I remember correctly oh um which again should have been great but that was like the best part uh rest of the movies are so so this one is light years above any of the other ones period all right very high happy. praise my friend high praise yep. Um, and I got one more for you. I started season two of Runaways. Okay, let me ask you this because I just got a month or so ago. I got Hulu because they're doing a, a dollar a, a month for a year. So I said I'm going to get it because they're going to have Veronica Mars on it eventually. Um, plus, I can watch like I can watch the Crisis episodes that were done. That's on there, for example. I haven't watched those yet. How was the first season of Runaways? I, I've heard different things about it from different people. So what, what was your what's your spoiler free take on it? Uh, my spoiler through my spoiler free take on it, and trust me, this is not a spoiler. 
by the time we get to season two, they've actually finally run away. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, because uh, season one was was actually really good at at building the characters uh, mm-hmm. of, of the of, of both the Runaways themselves and their parents. Because one you know, one per, one person told me they thought they thought the first season was very slow. It is. It, it's very okay. slow moving. Um, season two moves a little bit faster, and it also. Uh, at least from what I've seen so far, introduces characters that I wasn't actually expecting to see introduced in it, like side characters that that, that it happened during Brian K. Vaughn's run that oh, cool. actually have right. a more of a of a full fledged uh, reasoning for being there. They, they they redesign one of the characters into something that's a little bit more uh, associated with Molly, and uh, also as a potential, you know. Is he a runaway, or is he, or does he have ulterior motives? That's okay. the scenario. Um, we also get, um, and again, not not a spoiler to say, uh, at least in my opinion, hopefully it isn't for you. Zavin gets introduced in this. Oh, cool. That's that's fine. Yeah, great. Um, and uh, I, I won't say exactly what they do with him, but it's it, what I will say is that he's not a scroll because they okay, right? Because. Um, yeah. So the first season is worth watching, in your opinion. First season is worth watching to get to the second season. Um, there's definitely enough character building to get you through it. Um, okay. But I will say it is a little bit slow at times. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very, I'm a patient viewer. As long as as long as it's well written, I'll stay with I'll stay with the show. I'm getting something out of. I mean, I saw stills visually. The characters look amazing. I mean, it looks like they come right out of the comic, essentially. Yes. So. Yes. Absolutely, and even more so in the second season. Um, okay. I'm 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 getting I'm getting way more into it now in the second season than I was in the first. I'll, right. I'll definitely say that. I appreciate that because I mean the Vaughn Runaways I think is is a, is a classic. Oh so, yeah. Um, I'll I'll try to fit that in at some point. Yep. Good times. Right. Great great uh, great uh, media report for me and Levenstein, ladies and gentlemen. I got too much Thank time you. on my hands and I watch too much stuff. <laughs> Murray, anything else you wanted wanted to bring up for this episode? I I don't believe so, Chris. Have we shot our bolt, gentlemen? If the bolt has been shot, the bolt has been shot. <laughs> well, as always, it's been an honor, my friends. Happy to be here. Indeed. Happy to have you, Ian. Yeah, thanks, Thank man. boys. Happy New Year again. Same to you. Murray, do you want to take us out, brother? All right. Sounds like it's all over but the plugging. This episode <laughs> of Comic Geek Speak was brought to us uh, by the Collection Drawer Company and their fine product, the Drawer Box, the easy access comic storage system. Visit collectiondrawer.com to find out how they can help you bring your collection under control. If you'd like to send us an email, our address is comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 267-702-6642. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at comicgeekspeak. You can visit thecomicforums.vanillacommunity.com, which is our uh, forum site, where you can talk back about this and many other episodes of our show. And also engage in conversations with your fellow CGS listeners and posters on a variety of geeky topics, whether related to this show or not. Uh, we uh, would like to give special thanks to those of you who have uh, supported the show financially in the past. Really appreciate it. The show would not be what it is today without your help. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time. Yeah.
Aquaman.